Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Or perhaps you're listening on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on The Green Majority podcast. As coronavirus cases are still climbing worldwide and causing some countries to issue new lockdown orders, with over 580,000 people having died from the virus so far, Donald Trump is flailing his fragile limbs against the facts and opinions provided by his own experts and actively undermining the data collection process for COVID-19 patients, which will harm his country's entire response to the pandemic. Factory workers are still being sacrificed to keep the economic engine moving. Retail workers are no longer being given any extra pay for risking their lives. And the Democrats and Republicans have aligned in their mutual love of endless war by approving a bipartisan $740 billion military budget, even as millions of Americans can't afford rent. And here in Ontario, the Doug Ford government is on the cusp of enacting a bill that would make it easier for landlords to evict people. A new study, meanwhile, has brought greater detail to the atmospheric carbon records from the hottest period of the Pliocene epoch, in which CO2 levels were between 380 and 420 parts per million. Temperatures were 3 to 4 degrees Celsius warmer, and the oceans were 20 meters higher than they are today. This is further evidence of our catastrophic climate trajectory, since we're currently at around 415 parts per million of atmospheric CO2, and will likely pass 420 very soon, and our global temperatures will likely be catching up in the decades following. It will then be the hottest period in which humans have ever lived. In world climate news, 33 rivers in China have risen to their highest levels ever after historic flooding from weeks of torrential rain. Environmentalist Marvin Damien Castro has been killed in Honduras. Brazil is continuing its assault on indigenous communities by refusing to help them during the pandemic. And here in Ontario, Doug Ford is planning on cutting environmental protections even further in the name of economic recovery. In a bit of good news, the EU carbon market is being expanded to include shipping emissions, and major fossil fuel companies like Exxon uh, have been set back slightly in their efforts to stop being sued by Californians and potentially forced to help pay for various cities and counties' climate adaptation plans. Judges have recently ruled that the cases uh, will not be moved to federal courts, which are more favorable to the industry, and that Exxon will not be allowed to view the documents kept by government officials from the places that are suing the various companies. David Hasmayer noted for Inside Climate News in June that it was strange of the Texas justices in this case to apologize to the companies for their decision to follow the law rather than protect the fossil fuel industry, which they admitted that they would have preferred to do. Today we're going to discuss the Democrats' new climate plan, the Paris Agreement and its implications for Canada, afforestation, coastal gas link, and the airline industry, First, I will read this quote, however, by the father of environmental justice, Robert Bullard, from an interview by Evelyn Neves. Bullard said last month, quote, The fact that blacks are killed by police, that we're dying of COVID at twice the rate of whites, that our communities have the toxic dumps, that the rollbacks of environmental regulations and protections will affect our communities disproportionately, These issues are part of the same underlying structures that we need to dismantle. How are environmental rollbacks a racial justice issue? We live with them 24-7. The Trump administration sees environmental rollbacks as a way to fast-track permits. We see them as a fast-track to the emergency room and the cemetery. David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. How you doing? Just fine, Stefan. Just fine. Great. Yeah, didn't need that deep probe into my personal life there. 
But uh, we're going to move on now to the glorious Democratic Climate Change Plan. So Democrats in the U.S. Congress and on the campaign trail are releasing a whole bunch of climate policy, including a report uh, from the Democrats on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, which was revived in 2018 after Democrats took control of the House of Representatives, a uh, report from the Biden-Sanders task force that was brought together to bridge the divide between Democrats on climate, and an update to Biden's official plan with $2 trillion to be spent over four years for infrastructure to reduce carbon emissions and adapt to climate change. None of these reports mentions the Green New Deal, which is still seen as radical and risky. The House Democrats' plan, which was written with no input from Republicans, aims at steering the U.S. economy towards net zero by 2050, making all cars zero emissions by 2035, and heavy trucks zero emissions by 2040, and making sure all power plants are zero emissions by 2040 as well. It would cut pipeline methane emissions by 90% by 2030 from 2012 levels double public transportation funding, invest massively in energy efficiency and fossil fuel communities, extend renewable energy and electric vehicle tax credits, protect at least 30% of all U.S. land and oceans by 2030, support nuclear energy, and allow oil and gas to remain in industries like aviation and steel. It calls for a price on carbon, but stays soft on details and argues that it is only one tool. It also talks about justice for those marginalized communities that are always the first to be sacrificed to whatever crisis happens to come along, whether it be war, disease, or ecosystem collapse. Even the Sunrise Movement has praised the plan and says that it shows how youth are changing politics but that it still doesn't quite match the full scale of the task at hand. Politico reports that an independent energy consultant has predicted that the plan would prevent, quote, 62,000 premature deaths annually by 2050, while offering almost $8 trillion in cumulative health and climate benefits. Republicans have said that the plan is not practical because it isn't bipartisan, while Democrats have said that our grandchildren will not care if it was bipartisan or not. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that they will save the planet by turning this report into law. Bernie Sanders, meanwhile, has, as mentioned, helped craft a progressive policy roadmap for Biden about health care, COVID, racial justice, and climate change. And Biden has, of course, just recently released an updated climate plan, and he is framing climate change as an opportunity for job creation, and promising to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure, clean energy, and environmental justice. As Brian Kahn points out for Earther, however, uh, Biden's plan suffers from the same problem as the House Democrats' plan, in that it fails to directly address the end of the fossil fuel industry, which still holds a huge amount of power. A recent poll from the Pew Research Center shows that almost two-thirds of Americans want more climate action, and polls from Data for Progress suggest that there might even be major support for nationalizing the energy industry and keeping fossil fuels in the ground. So I'll jump into the the sort of two major criticisms of this plan, I think. And again, the plan is solid. Uh, You know, $2 trillion over four years is certainly something, is certainly more than any previous president has has engaged to do and it this plan follows roughly what uh what we, what we were told to expect uh from that dave roberts piece pre- that we covered a few weeks ago and so there's there's certainly a lot of here to like uh but of course the the question is does, is, does it go far enough and the answer unfortunately with climate policy is almost always no and the one of the major reasons why not as as you noted about brian Kahn's point in earther is regards is in regards to the fact that it doesn't actually fully address um, the 
the fossil fuel industry. And, and what's important to realize why that matters so much is that the United States has actually become a net exporter of fossil fuels. Uh, in the past, I believe it was eight, the trend began with the Obama uh, presidency, but has continued and now has become a net exporter during the Trump presidency, which means that even if you were really effective at reducing the United States' use of, of fossil fuels, they're still sending so much overseas that that becomes, you know, that, that they're not actually reducing as much emissions as you could unless they start dealing with, with this supply side. There's, there's, another, there's another criticism that I'll get to in a second, but first to you, Lauren. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, reading up for this segment, I read a really great piece by Kate Aronoff in The New Republic. Um, and in it, of course, yes, yeah, she starts off sort of like talking about some highlights of the plan. Like, like you mentioned, there's like $2 trillion that it's budgeted for. Uh, there's the sort of conservation core that's slated to do some really awesome work. Some of that sort of very, um, although it's not distinctly labeled Green New Deal, very sort of like Green New Deal style programming around like literally paying people to get out there and do um, land reclamation work and, and all that good stuff. And, and there's um, a, a large percentage of energy infrastructure investment going to frontline communities. I think it's something like 40%. And then, then you've even got kind of uh, interesting points, like like something I've never sort of heard before is is they're proposing to open up an office of environmental justice within the DOJ, within the Department of Justice, which like isn't necessarily what immediately comes to my mind when I think about the phrase environmental justice, but like I'm curious to hear more about it. All right, cool. Um, but she does sort of, uh, she, she does lob some, some really good criticism and it's not just strictly that like, oh, it doesn't go far enough. Oh, zero by 2050 isn't fast enough. She, she talks a lot about the um, interesting stance it takes in terms of it's like it has this uh, conviction that um, it's really sort of based around markets and production and job creation through manufacturing. And, and what she sort of mentions at some point in the piece is that unfortunately, America, like, like Canada, for instance, like many countries in, in sort of North America, because we've been laggards on climate over the past 15 to 20 years, it means that right now, like maybe with the exception of like some cool tech firms in Silicon Valley or whatever, there just isn't simply the green tech in abundance as much as we would need it to be in order for a green revolution to be entirely North American made. Um, so it's the idea in that pledging to, um, I, think, I think there's a line that talks about how like any project that is devised in America around green energy has to be manufactured in America as well. And how that to a degree could hamstring um, the, the, the nation in terms of speed of transition. And also um, tangentially, you're sort of in insisting that all of that manufacturing power come out of America, you're, you're in some ways hamstringing uh, developing nations that could really rely on those manufacturing jobs and those green manufacturing jobs in order to help them uh, quote unquote develop as time goes on. Um, yeah, she goes on. She goes on with some really interesting criticisms as well. Obviously, again, not taking away from the bottom line that this is a really sort of this is a great overall plan. It's really fantastic that it's been developed by so many big personalities within the party. It, it, it's a sign that the Democratic Party is sort of uniting around climate in a really cool, really powerful way that we haven't seen before. Um, but it, it's yeah, it's it's obviously not without criticism. Yeah, and what's interesting as well to jump off that is that. There's this idea, and there's, I, was, I was sort of reading up on this previously. There's a there's an idea that manufacturing good manufacturing jobs, you know, these are like union jobs, quote unquote, and they're like they come with pensions and all these same types of things, and and the person was sort of making the point that like those are quote unquote good jobs because you know the the unions have effectively made them so, but that doesn't mean that you cannot have good service industry jobs. You know, we we it's there's so many uh, green green jobs that are service industry jobs you know they're like the like we need a shift i think of understanding that yes a bunch of actual physical work does need to get done for sure you know like there's significant actual work that needs to get done to 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 make the infrastructure able to to withstand uh, and to 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 work alongside a a green energy revolution but at the same time, a big part of the shift still also has to be focused on this sort of shift towards a more service economy and, 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 and an economy that's more based around 
helping people and caring for people. You know, the, the, the care work is climate work has been a mantra that has been coming through this whole time. And if anything, COVID has should have taught us how, how important, obviously, uh, you know, health care for, for all is going is in regards to a, your ability to deal with a pandemic, but really just generally the ability to treat everyone like human beings that deserves to live. And so I think that a that of course you're going to see a significant push i think from this from a green transition to focus a lot on the stuff that would do directly decarbonizing work but i think we can't forget the importance of in of supporting and helping these other types of care work jobs you know to to become the good jobs that people can rely on because they are low carbon jobs uh, and they are jobs that 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 help the society sort of move forward and and live in a different way and so i think we have to sort of focus that a little bit on that as well. Yeah, well well and and more to the point it's like like you said especially with with covid those are those are jobs that we need to fill right now. We know if we're going to have the sort of just and equitable society that we need, we do need more people working in the care industry. We do need more nurses, we do need more personal support workers. We need more teachers. <laughs> I was reading a, an interview with Naomi Klein in The Guardian this week where she talked about this sort of pivot we're seeing to people like pivoting really hard to screens and tech-based education, which, which of course makes total sense given COVID. But she said, she made the point that like, wouldn't it also just be really great if we halved class sizes and really increased the number of teachers and provided safe learning environments that way because we're halving the number of students in a given classroom, um, which would again, sort of be one of those things where that's a low carbon job that also provides a really good solution to to increasing the quality of student learning and helps with potential per, like future pandemic uh, reduction. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the fact that it's like it's it's we have this idea in our head that a good job is a good um, trade job that that they're rooted in, in in factories and sort of trades in the traditional um, mid to late 20th century sense. And that's absolutely true. And I'm not saying that we don't need to invest a lot in those jobs and, and really like encourage people to get involved in that work. Absolutely, that needs to happen. But there's something to be said for the fact that um, I think we have that in our mind because of a lot of really, really good propaganda that came out in, in the mid century, post depression and post war to be like getting back to work means going to a factory. And, and again, I'm not diminishing the importance of those jobs and that people should be should be working towards them. But that's, like you said, that's not the only version of a good job. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe we need to commission new posters. Yeah, well, and, and also, and what made them a good job, right? Like what made them a good job was an effective union and and a lot of work uh, organizing. And and these th and those, the skills that made those good jobs could easily could exist with long-term care homes or other skilled labor that is, you know, that is different, right? There's an ability to trans to learn from what made those quote-unquote good jobs and make other jobs good jobs. It's not like there's something unique, I would say, about about working at a factory that is not true about working at a, you know, at a long-term care home that you could not find through organizing your, your peers and, and working towards ensuring that those types of things are, you know, I guess I guess they are valued by society is really key, right? You have to find a way to ensure that the society understands their value. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I know we're probably going to pivot topic soon, but there is something to be said for the fact that like they these are jobs which historically have had less value in society because they're jobs which historically have been occupied by women um, or or migrants coming into the country. Um, so it's, yeah, <laughs> I think we need to do a lot of work to convince the average um, middle-aged white man that, I don't know, a job as a PSW can be a really good paying job. <laughs> and if you unionize your workers, like people have historically, and I mean, we are seeing sort of the rise of the, of the, of the labor union, of the labor organization again, which is really cool. And we're seeing them in, we're seeing them in uh, sectors like journalism. We're seeing them in sectors like, like service work. Um, yeah, I think I think we just need to sort of sell the idea that a good job doesn't just look like a, a factory job anymore. Any unionized job is a good job. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, we will go to the next point in, in, after this in a second. But to to fi finalize that point, what's there is a a number of things that line up there too, right? Like the fact that women have experienced significant decreases in uh, much bigger job losses uh, than men during the during the recession. 
um, and that they're experiencing sort of extra pressure because of because of the societal expectations that they are supposed to take care of you know of their of their children. Th- this an actual return towards trying to ensure that these more traditionally women centric jobs are good jobs sort of solves actually multiple different pieces of of the of the COVID recession, uh, and and all of this should be wrapped up into an understanding. The the other uh, criticism that I saw that I think we'll, I'll get to at the end of actually the next piece is the fact that Biden's plan doesn't actually include a lot of conversation about how to help other nations decarbonize. And, and that's, I think, going to be quite important, especially in light of, of where we're going to next. So let's, let's jump into the Paris Accord uh, story. So returning briefly to a paper we talked about a couple weeks ago, Kevin Anderson, John F. Broderick, and Isaac Stoddard published a research article in the journal Climate Policy at the end of May, in which they appear to show that even the most climate-progressive states, countries, would have to double their current efforts or more in order to bring them in line with equitable Paris Agreement commitments. This is um, because planetary-scale negative emissions technologies are in no sense guaranteed to save us in the nick of time, and because those climate-progressive nations are generally in the industrialized world, meaning that they will have to reduce emissions more aggressively than poorer countries if we are to mitigate climate change effectively and equitably. The authors therefore criticize the IPCC mitigation scenarios for assuming that negative emissions technologies will be available in time or at scale, and for failing to differentiate mitigation efforts between developed and developing countries. The paper also finds that physical infrastructure will have to change as massively as it did during the European Marshall Plan that started just after the Second World War, and that there isn't enough room for intersectoral emissions trading for aviation to trade its way out of reducing its emissions to zero, meaning that all of our flying machines, if we're to continue flying them, will somehow have to stop emitting carbon dioxide. As we mentioned before, the paper translate Paris objectives translates Paris objectives into carbon budgets and calculates that developed nations will have to tighten their budgets significantly. It also argues that non-energy related emissions, which are dominated by cement production and deforestation, should not count towards a country's individual carbon budget, but should be relegated to the collective in what the authors call a global overhead because the countries doing the most cement production and deforestation are generally the poorer countries who are still quote-unquote developing and who haven't contributed so much historically to climate change. The authors write, quote, Nevertheless, whilst whilst, uh, ethical considerations are important, the global cement industry cannot be exempt from deep and rapid decarbonization. The inclusion here of the cement sector as a global overhead does not exempt nations with high cement use from seeking to reduce process emissions. Rather, it puts pressure on the global industry to rapidly curtail its emissions. Failure to do so only puts further downward pressure on energy-only carbon budgets that are already at the threshold of what is achievable. On deforestation, they write, quote, Considering deforestation emissions as a global overhead does not absolve deforesting nations from responsibility. It does, however, reduce the burden on them, providing an incentive for all nations to encourage a global reduction in deforestation, not least because the lower the total emissions from deforestation, the greater the available global carbon budget for the energy sector. And the authors conclude, quote, most high-level emissions scenarios transfer a significant proportion of the mitigation burden onto future generations. Remove this temporal transfer, and Paris-compliant pathways demand an immediate ramping up of mitigation to rates very rarely discussed. Even within more climate-progressive nations, the Paris Agreement necessitates an immediate increase in their proposed mitigation rates by a factor of 2 to over 10% per annum which, with uh, full decarbonization, achieved across all sectors by 2035 to 2040. Delivering such rapid and deep mitigation implies profound changes to many facets of contemporary industrial society. But failing to take appropriate action will increasingly lock in devastating climate impacts imposed uh, initially upon poor and climate-vulnerable societies 
but ultimately across all of the international community and natural ecosystems. Yeah, so there's a few things here. And obviously, this underscores the importance of of the international community coming and working with the you know, working with in an international scope to ensure that everyone has access to the the best decarbonizing technology they possibly have. Uh, I have a mini rant about cement that I'll get to uh, later on, but I just want to highlight before going to Lauren the fact that like in this art in what you just quoted said that we have to have a full decarbonization of all sectors by 20, 2035, 2040 or sorry, 2035 to 2040, whereas the Biden plan, which, again, is one of the best plans we have seen uh, coming out that, uh, from an actual government trying to move something forward, at least in the States for sure, the his plan still has 2050 to be net zero. And again, net zero is fundamentally different from uh, a fully decarbonized economy. That like Net zero has... I, we could do a whole show about my issues with net zero, but basically it lets you begin to play with numbers because you can start claiming that the trees you planted, you know, decrease the carbon for, so you can do something else. And that begins to let you play with the economies uh, or the, it lets you fudge numbers a little bit that I think that that should be concerned. So whenever you see net zero, be at least a little bit skeptical. But but that just shows you that even the most ambitious plan is still 10 to 15 years late and still not even getting there. And so it sort of highlights just the overwhelming amount of work that still needs to get done. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, um, no, that exact, the exact note around zero by 2050 is something that I was thinking about um, while I was reading up on uh, Biden's plan and then sort of doing a little bit of reading for this piece as well, because um, yeah, zero by 2050 is sort of, a number or a hashtag or a catchphrase that I know at least people people were using at least five years ago, six years ago at Paris for COP21. And I'm sure it was in use before then. And at that time, zero by 2050 was like, yes, that's what people were asking for. That's what you saw the climate community pushing for. Um, because at that time it was it was viewed as ambitious um and it was viewed as sort of like what what we could hope for it was it was also around the time that we were pushing for for a two degree cap on warming um but that was six years ago <laughs> and we have continued to use up a whole lot of fossil fuels since then so unfortunately although we're finally now starting to see um we're a global uh, governments all over the place or national governments globally starting to use zero by 2050 as a target they're aiming for. Um, unfortunately, that's, that's too late. That's a target that would have been really great for you to use five years ago or six years ago. But at this point, yeah, you sort of, um, they waited too long and now it's too little too late. And now, unfortunately, what we need you to pivot to is this zero by 2040, zero by 30, uh, by 2035 kind of thing, which, which sounds so much more extreme and so much more radical than zero by 2050 sounds. But unfortunately, it's it's the reality of the situation now. We waited too long. Um, and now you have to cram for that test in the morning as opposed to spacing your studying equally over the course of the three weeks before the test. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of something I wanted to touch on. Uh, and then and then yeah, this idea that um, countries in the global north need to take responsibility for not just reducing their own carbon emissions, but those that, uh, that, but those that occur overseas as a result of what the countries in the global north have done. For instance, I mean, um, so I, full disclosure, I work for an organization, or for an organization called Climate Action Network Canada, and uh, there was something we put out late last year when some of my colleagues were at COP. Um, and, and it's this idea that Canada's fair share reduction target isn't 30% by 2030, of course. Um, in actuality, it's, it's closer to 140% by 2030. And that's the idea that it's a 60% reduction domestically coupled with an 80% reduction internationally. Um, and a large, uh, and, and the majority of the way that we would get to that 80% reduction internationally would be through um, international climate financing, which at this point, from what I understand, Canada is committing something like $800 million annually, when in actuality, our fair share uh, in terms of international climate finance is more so like $4 billion annually. So that would be $4 billion that Canada would commit every year to supporting other countries uh, when it comes to uh, adaptation mitigation and loss and damage. Um, so not only are we falling grossly short 
of that financial sort of obligation. Um, but also the majority of the money that Canada is committing at this point isn't going directly to those countries. It's being funneled to them, not bilaterally, but through multilateral development banks, through, through the World Bank and through different climate finance bodies, which means that a lot of the time they're loans. So these countries, even if they are accepting this money from countries like Canada in an effort to help them reduce their emissions, they're racking up debt as a result of doing that. So, we're, so how much help we're actually doing sort of, I don't know, remains to be seen. I guess basically, long story short, the authors of this article are totally correct. Um, and none of the countries in the global north are doing their part by a long shot. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I'm I'm still struck by a bit when, because like, if you're in around climate enough, you get in a lot of conversations around people arguing about what our targets should be. And the thing I get struck by so often is, I feel like part of the ability of the of those in power to keep the conversations around targets is that it doesn't mean the question is never what you're doing next tomorrow. And like for me, like the idea that we're going to get to 2035 or 2050 to to net zero, quote unquote, means that at some point we have to actually start actually reducing our emissions, which we have not yet proven to be able to do except during recessions. Like the only time the global emissions have reduced per annum. Uh, and again, that's not that's not actual emissions that are still in the sky. That's emissions that we're releasing each year has been has has reduced has been during times of global recessions. And so for me, there's like a big piece of like, yes, we have to keep these things hard. But we have to then if you have your goal is 2035 or 2040, where's your work back plan? What are you doing this year? What are you doing next year? And with the hope of those pieces or else you're not going to get there. Yeah, if I can just jump in really quick, it's it's like that's one of the reasons that uh, it was so encouraging to hear Trudeau say during the election that they would be putting in place five year five year like um, milestones, I guess, and developing uh, a, a national carbon budget because uh, when it does sort of all come down to accounting. Uh, a budget is a much easier metric to work with. It's a, it's a much easier metric to understand. Um, it, it, it lets you sort of, it, 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 uh, it avoids the problem that we got to when we started using zero by 2050, because it doesn't say, oh, sometime in the next 50 years, you have to reduce by this much. It's saying, no, this is how much you have to reduce by right now, or this is how much you actually, you have to spend right now, which is sort of, to me at least, would be a much easier way to sort of backcast and devise your policy based off of. Um, and yeah, that idea that that we we currently don't actually have any legally binding targets. So it it doesn't even matter if you don't hit that target that you established in 50 years, because not only is there no consequence for you politically as the person who 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 will likely no longer be in office by then, but there's no consequence for the nation because there, there's nothing legally binding you to that target, aside from like, you know, heat death. <laughs> Heat death, our only, our only judge. Um, it, so we'll go to airplanes in in half a second. But just to, to, just because I teased it earlier, if I can only say one thing about cement, it is look up the unbelievable carbon that is required to make cement. Um, and if there's one place I think, especially that a bunch of investment and and support in developing nations needs to go in, it's helping people make cement in a way that is that is at least dramatically less carbon intensive than it is now, because it is. It's there's honestly like four or five different weird things about cement. If you want to look into people stealing sand from all over to build cement, you can also do that or make cement. You also do that. There's like there, cement has like three different environmental catastrophes all built into one, and and so it cannot go under. It, there's it's a reason why it was mentioned in this in this in the study, and there's a reason why it needs to be paid attention to. And so by all means, one of the more sticky. Uh, carbon to get at for sure, and the, well, the other one, of course, is airlines, which we're heading to now. So the UN has given the global airline industry a break by saying that new pandemic-level airline emissions will not be part of the baseline for the millions of tons of carbon offsets that had been planned for the industry, in a document signed by 191 countries in 2016. This is partly because the pandemic has simply lost airlines' money even though major governments like the U.S. and Germany ran to bail them out after everyone stopped flying, and even though it is an industry that helped in a major way to spread the pandemic in the first place, and even though it is an industry that is continuing to push our civilization towards the brink of ecological collapse. 
Airlines were meant to start curbing their emissions from a baseline that included 2020 levels, which, because of the pandemic, have turned out to be lower than predicted, meaning the airlines would actually have to mitigate more carbon throughout the 20s because of COVID. So they complained to the UN about this, and now they are allowed to mitigate emissions based on 2019 levels alone, which will save them $15 billion. James Munson points out for Bloomberg Law that if airline emissions stay below 2019 levels for the next three years, then airlines will not have to cut their emissions at all during that time, since they've already been cut by the pandemic. If this effort is limited to carbon offsets, however, uh, as we've just seen from the Anderson paper, there aren't enough offsets in the world to clean the aviation industry entirely. So this is a quick comment that we have entered the second round of what I will call carbon uh, carbon tracking uh, in, under the school of the Harper government, which is you choose the year directly before the recession, compare everything to that, and declare your job done. Uh, it, the, if anyone has been listening to the show previously, you may have remi- remember the fact that Canada, for a very long time, maybe to this day, continued to use the year directly before, I think it was 2007 levels, directly before the recession in 2008, as, as their baseline. And then they were able to basically draw a line downwards on a graph saying they're reducing emissions, even though what actually happened is it went off a cliff and then it was rising slowly. And and that's what you're going to see here. You're going to see the aviation industry actually increasing emissions over the next three, four years using the 2019 standard and as an, as an argument as to why they don't have to do anything. And it is, it is why you will see lying with graphs in regards to carbon everywhere. Uh, you know, you, if, you get, if you let someone choose the baseline year, they can do whatever they like. Yeah, I don't have, I don't have anything really all that clever to say about this just beyond that it is it's just it's so agitating i'm so i'm so annoyed (laughs) because all i'm imagining is like speak because i think when we specifically read about this it was within the european context and i just have this vision of like richard branson sitting in his estate in i believe south africa being like oh i love the animals they're so majestic i care so deeply for the environment and then he owns he owns virgin airlines um (laughs) and demands money from uh, a government when when they're experiencing some tough times and and i really hope that funding was connected to some sort of carbon reduction and i really hope the funding was sort of mandated to contribute to actual like um workers salaries and stopgap measures and putting money into green tech but in all likelihood that's not true i probably should have done a quick google search before before we started talking about this to confirm that but i'm just this is just so agitating because this is just the wealthy oligarchical ruling class being like oh I lost money and now I'm sad about it. I also don't want to have to work any harder going forward. It's just, it's so annoying. I'm so angry. Yeah, and we cannot continue flying like the way we have. That's the short version. Like, especially short-haul flights. I'm not here to say that anyone who needs to, you know, fly across the world to visit their family shouldn't be able to do so. You know, that's going to be difficult and we got to find ways to mitigate that emissions for sure. But, like, you do not need to fly from Toronto to New York every day for business. You don't. Stop it. Please. <laughs> yes. And it's not, it's actually a very nice ride. I've done it a couple times. Uh, let's move on. So, uh, Coastal Gaslink, uh, a subsidiary of TC Energy and the company behind the major liquid natural gas pipeline going through unceded Wet'suwet'en territory, has been issued a non compliance order after the BC Environmental Assessment Office found that the company started building through hundreds of wetlands without doing the proper environmental fieldwork. The indigenous communities in the area, the Unistotan and Gidimden clans of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, had already told the BC government that the company was not respecting the wetlands, and when the government went in to check it out, they found that the company had not done proper assessment for any of the nearly 300 protected wetlands along the route. It will now be up to the very people who didn't do the assessments in the first place to determine how much damage they've actually done. 
Net News Ledger, based in Thunder Bay, reports that because the company never gave Wet'suwet'en leadership site-specific plans about how they were going to cross waterways and wetlands, they've been violating a condition of their permit and so have been operating illegally. There have also recently been heavily armed RCMP officers snooping around a Wet'suwet'en smokehouse that has been served with notices from Coastal GasLink that it is in their way, even though the company has not yet obtained the environmental assessment approvals that would allow them to build in that area. As, as mentioned previously, TC Energy is TransCanada. mentioned that last week, just reminding you again that this is a... This those who got brought you all the fun of uh, of these of the other pipelines are are, are are behind Coastal GasLink as well, and you know this is it's good news that again it's slowed down again. I I don't think that this is going to. I'm not very. I'm not holding a lot of hope in my heart that this will be the thing that actually really you know informs the BC government or the Canadian government that this cannot go through, but. Anything that slows it down is is at least uh, as, a, as a next step and a good start. So, you know, it's small news, but good news. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a zillion reasons why this project is terrible and why we all know it can't go through, uh, not least of which because we know natural gas is not a bridge fuel. But um, something I was thinking about today, how agitated I am that the Canadian government continues to back this project because I don't, I don't know if people remember, it wasn't actually that, it wasn't actually super big news, um, but for, for a few years, um, there was this sort of initiative by the federal government, really, really championed by Catherine McKenna called Pathways to 2020. And it was the idea that Canada was going to set aside and protect 17% of land and fresh water um, in, in the name of conservation and the name of biodiversity protection and climate change. Um, and part of that initiative was the idea that a lot of the newly protected lands were going to be indigenous protected areas. And the Canadian government was going to be partnering with indigenous communities in order to protect this land and protect this biodiversity. And it was their way of being like, hey, we know like Jasper National Park and Banff were, were founded on the lands of indigenous people and resulted in us driving them out. But we're not going to do that this time. We're going to start these new parks and these new protected lands and we're going to do it in concert with the indigenous communities that historically have lived there. And that's all well and good, and that's great that they've that they've had those projects, and it's it's great that some agency is finally being given back to those indigenous land and rights holders. But to then turn around and continue to support a project that ravages the land of the Wet'suwet'en people, when the Wet'suwet'en people are explicitly saying, "This is sacred land. This is protected territory. We don't want you here. We know how to manage it ourselves. We live here. We have for ten thousand years." And, and we've done a pretty good job actually of, of managing it from a sustainability standpoint as well. It's, it's just so hypocritical. And, and I know that's nothing new. I know we all know that the Trudeau government has a terrible history of really, really good PR when it comes to indigenous um, sort of relationship building and, and really terrible practice in reality. But this is just so blatant when on one hand they're saying we're teaming up with indigenous communities to protect the land. And on the other hand, they are giving permission and protecting with weapons and guns and tanks and trucks this company that is going in and and taking over this land that is actively being lived on by indigenous people. Um, yeah, the hypocrisy is is upsetting to say the least. Yeah, uh, and if you if you want to get a little more information, I believe National Observer actually has a reporter currently. Uh, embedded with the Wet'suwet'en people and has been covering this. So check that out on Twitter. Uh, And uh, we'll go to a music break, I guess. A study published recently by researchers at Stanford University, University of California, Santa Barbara, and Universidad de Concepcion in Santiago, found that Chile's four-decade-long subsidy of tree planting operations has yielded next to no extra-natural carbon storage. Laura Milan-Lambrana, reporting for Bloomberg, notes that at a cost of $408 million, the Chilean government subsidized the creation of new forest plantations covering an area 
three times the size of Rhode Island, only to find that since 1986, the total carbon stored in vegetation had only increased by 2%. In addition, during this period, native forest shrunk by 13%, leading to a net loss of biodiversity. The report calls for caution in promoting afforestation, particularly in the form of tree plantations, as an effective tool for climate change mitigation, just as countries around the world place afforestation at the center of their climate mitigation strategies, from Germany's Bond Challenge to Trump's Trillion Tree Initiative, and to Pakistan, whose uh, climate change ministry is set to spend 98% of its budget on tree planting. The focus on afforestation bears explanation given that natural carbon storage itself plays only a small role in carbon sequestration estimates. By a large measure, the mitigation, mitigation effects of afforestation are associated not with uh, the carbon absorbed by the trees, but by the reduction in fossil fuel emissions offset by the burning of biofuel in combination with carbon capture technologies. Thus, the latest report issued by the UK's Committee for Climate Change called for 75 to 175 megatons of CO2 to be stored annually by carbon capture storage technology by 2050, whereas a 4% increase in forest cover is only slated to increase natural carbon sequestration to a net of 22 megatons of CO2. Similarly, wood construction, another much-touted method of carbon storage, is only estimated to save 2 to 3 megatons of CO2. So while growing new forest cover generally presages, uh, so growing new forest cover generally presages a massive increase in industrial processing, including lumber, construction, and the burning of biofuels. While the problems with bioenergy, while the problems with bioenergy with carbon capture and storage are well known by now, the most worrying contradiction of government promotion of afforestation in the form of export-oriented single-species tree plantations is between the explicit market-oriented strategy of selling lumber and biofuels uh, and the explicit unprofitability of carbon capture and storage. In the case of Chile, the lumber industry accounts for $2.3 billion in exports and 64% of tree plantations are owned by only three companies. Last November, in Saskatchewan, Sask Power's Boundary Dam uh, power station celebrated the successful carbon capture of 3 megatons of CO2 since opening in 2014, a rate of 600,000 uh, 600, tons of uh, CO2 per year. Canada, whose forests cover 3.5 million uh, square kilometers and 32% of its territory, emitted um, 729 megatons of CO2 in 2018. To offset that much carbon, we would need uh, 1,215 1200, carbon capture storage facilities at a cost of $1.5 billion apiece, like the one at Boundary Dam, or roughly one for every four Tim Hortons, at the cost larger than the whole of Canada's 2019 GDP. As the planet warms, the area of arable land is set to shrink. By most accounts, including ones like the UK's uh, Climate Change Committee's Land Use Report, increased forest cover will encroach on land used for agriculture and food production. As the Chilean experience shows, promoting afforestation by way of profit-oriented lumber plantations and expensive speculative technology may do more harm than good by taking pressure off policymakers to meet carbon reduction targets, targets that few countries have taken serious steps to achieve. Yeah, so I think there, there are two main takeaways here. Uh, the first is that whenever you hear the sort of solution of they're just plant a trillion trees and solve climate change. This is a beginning of the reasons why this will not work. You know, we cannot plant trees our way out of climate change. The only real way to reduce emissions is to leave oil and other fossil fuels in the ground and, and allow for some sort of type of, of, of rewilding, really. And the, and the second thing is a, a throwback to a story we covered at, at least a year or two ago around how land that was stewarded uh, by indigenous peoples actually was more biodiverse than land that was sort of left on its own. 
And I think this has to be understood that we what we cannot do is simply presume that planting trees and not creating an ecosystem is is the way to do this. You have to be creating an ecosystem. You have to be creating a biodiverse uh, whole park and whole 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 world. And you know, there's a whole bunch of here things about carbon capture and storage, which we'll get to in in a future episode. But you know, to me, the biggest thing here is that you know, if anyone says they're going to plant a billion trees to solve the problem, will it help? Probably, but not nearly as much as as actually giving land, you know, back uh, both to indigenous peoples, but also to 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 the ecosystem at large. And uh, we'll mention now that Alberta's Bill One is going to, into effect this week after receiving royal assent. The bill, as we've mentioned previously, uh, ran recently, was put forward in February in the midst of countrywide rail blockades, occupations, and protests against the construction of the Coastal GasLink pipeline. Already facing its first legal challenge by the Alberta Union of Public Employees, The bill criminalizes public demonstrations under the auspices of protecting critical infrastructure. Ostensibly only applying to rail blockades and pipeline protests, critics argue that the bill clearly violates charter rights and freedoms like the freedom to associate and freedom of assembly. The lawsuit claims further that the bill is vague, arbitrary, and disproportionate. The Globe and Mail reports, quote, Marlene Poitras, the Alberta Regional Chief for the Assembly of First Nations, said in an interview that the law is a blatant example of the total disregard for our treaties and our leadership. And, quote, Darcy Lindbergh, who teaches at the University of Alberta, said the law grants broad powers to police officers to arrest even without warrant and he warned the law could lead to the arrest of indigenous peoples accessing their treaty lands, even for hunting, fishing, or gathering. Jonah Moseson, uh, press secretary for Alberta Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer, rejects these criticisms, even though the bill explicitly makes these innocuous actions unlawful. You know, we covered this pretty extensively on a, on a previous show, so all I will say here is uh, kudos to those who are fighting it, uh, and good luck to everyone in Alberta pushing back against this bill because it it has to fall. It's, it is unbelievably an overstep, and I hope that the courts see it as such. 